Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points and we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. Uh, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist, actually is with us this week from Davos. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. Hi. So the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economics of Switzerland, which is where Davos is and where Adam is right now. So stick around to uh, hear about secret bank accounts and watches and a lot of other interesting things about Switzerland. But first, we wanted to do something from the news. And the data point there, unfortunately, is 21. That is the number of people that were killed in the elementary school in the town of Uvalde in Texas this past week. Good evening, fellow Americans. I had hoped when I became president I would not have to do this again. Another massacre. It's not the first school shooting in the United States. Uvalde has joined other places that are already sadly familiar to us, Columbine, Parkland, Sandy Hook, to name just a few. And uh, it probably won't be the last. You know, we were planning on doing a different segment here at the top, and school shootings really don't seem like a natural topic for an economics podcast. But we wanted to try to shine some sort of light on such a dark situation. And it struck us that the peculiar... American economy that now surrounds school shooting, you know, the economy of school safety could use some airing out. So, Adam, obviously gun control legislation has not gone anywhere in the United States. And I suppose, though, we can't say that the government hasn't done anything in response to school shootings. Uh, The federal government and state governments have spent billions on improving school safety in just the last handful of years. So, Where exactly has that money gone, Adam? It really is billions. Uh, According to the best estimates I've seen, it appears to be in the order of two to three billion dollars. I think it's per year. I mean, it just beggars belief. And it pays for this entire armory of things, you know, metal detectors, armored doors, huge amounts of surveillance cameras. Many counties, many school districts have central security offices, a bit like traffic control centers to track dangerous movements around their premises. Um, It pays for security guards in many American schools. And then more mundane things like, you know, technologies for early warning of various types, alarm systems. It's an entire industry, which in some states is, you know, there's a combination of both federal funding and state level funding for this. And states like Florida have appropriated up to $400 million for a variety of different school security measures. A bunch of stuff can be packed under that rubric because obviously school safety is something that passes well through the political system, pays for emergency planning, but also mental health programs, violence prevention, 
and then all of these training drills and the instructors that provide them that the poor kids are, are put through and the staff are put through as well. So we talk about the gun lobby all the time in the United States, but I mean, this entire school security industry that you're talking about, has that become a kind of big economic player, a big lobby of its own? I think it seems right to say that almost in the way in which the focus on on school safety in itself has a kind of distracting function. I mean, obviously, schools ought to be absolutely safe and no child should ever come to any harm in a school. And the fact that they do is such an appalling reality that that Americans and the entire world, in fact, that watches in horror. I mean, you know, I'm in Switzerland right now and the German news, the Swiss news are full of this story uh, and America's anguish over it. And indeed, the history, the Europeans track this. But in a sense, the focus on the schools, as terrible as it is, is a kind of ideological effect because you refer to the gun lobby, there, there are an estimated 400 million firearms in circulation in the United States. And that is the gun lobby and sustaining those in, in circulation, the business that provide them and sell them. And the lobby that, that insists on the Americans' right to carry these weapons is, is extraordinarily powerful in political terms. And those weapons kill a lot of people, over 40,000 people a year. And of those people that die, roughly 10% are children. So in any given year, over 4,000 American young people fall victim to firearms, either in the street or in the home either deliberately or accidentally, through suicide or through murder. It is, the CDC reported, ahead of the COVID epidemic, it had overtaken car accidents as the major source of death amongst young Americans. And what that means is that for all of the horror of school shootings, literally a 100 times more young Americans are shot to death uh, on the street or in their homes every single year. So for the horror of these school shootings, multiply it by a hundred to actually capture the reality of the carnage inflicted on American young people. Over 90% of all of the children worldwide who fall victim to gun death outside war zones fall victim to gun death in the United States. It is the singular privilege of America's young people to be exposed to this risk. It is absolutely staggering when you think about it. Um, the, the school massacres are simply the, in some senses, most obscene element of this story because clearly schools we think of as places of safety. Ah, goodness. Um, that is very, very stark. Uh, you, you did mention the figures about spending on uh, keeping schools safe so in the order of two to three billion dollars. This is money meant to secure schools against gun violence. I mean, if, if we just had to spitball here, I mean, could that money uh, that's being used for security be used for something else instead in an ideal world? I mean, do uh, American schools do have other unmet needs beyond uh, just security questions, right? It's, it's so difficult to talk about this without getting very upset. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, yeah. Um, yeah, the Century Foundation has an elaborate statistical formula through which they can calculate how much money would actually need to be spent on American schools um, to give uh, kids in those schools a chance of achieving the average school performance of American school kids. So this is a, a test, essentially, of the disadvantage suffered by kids in poor neighborhoods, and it's particularly black and Latino kids in poorer counties and school districts in the United States compared to their white counterparts. And on that basis, using that formula, you can estimate pretty precisely 
what kind of money would be necessary to bring those underfunded districts up to the national average. And the numbers are very significant. So for the top 10 underfunded school districts in the United States, the total extra funding need is $20 billion. $20 billion is needed and we're wasting or being forced to waste money on school security because of this outrageous gun violence. In LA school district alone, the shortfall is $5.77 billion according to this calculation. So if you ask whether there's better things that you could be spending this money on, I mean, it just screams to high heaven. Yes, of course, we should be educating kids and be putting teachers in a position to teach them. Goodness. Um, This just strikes me as kind of terrible negative feedback loop of a kind. I mean, we're throwing billions of dollars into an effort to manage this gun problem at, at schools and uh, the problem just keeps getting worse. And so we throw more money at it. You know, I mean, maybe even it's getting worse as a result of these interventions. I mean, you know, maybe we're creating the impression that, that schools are targets in the minds of people who are psychotic. Uh, I, I don't know. But just the way this this market works, I mean, is that a pattern elsewhere, this kind of perverse kind of negative feedback loop? Yeah, I mean, I think the security industry in general preys on on our anxieties i mean the gun business itself does right i mean the principal sell of guns in the united states is this perverse idea that people will be able to defend themselves against some sort of unnamed but if you scratch the surface fairly obvious idea of social upheaval uprising and it's often extremely racialized when you think about the anxieties that spread around the country when jails were emptied during the covid epidemic for instance There's this idea that, you know, you need a weapon in the home to protect you and yours against the marauding hordes. And the security industry is the flip side of that. I I think it was the Washington Post ran a rather interesting article about one of the, there are trade fairs for school security. And the sale pitch is literally, well, just imagine you're going to be faced with one of these massacres. And, you know, you know, say my so say my security system costs two million dollars. Is is that too high a price to pay to save the lives of some innocent kids? Do the math. Like, I mean, how 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 are school administrators faced with this impossible problem to make rational choices? Schools ought to be absolutely safe. There ought simply to be no question of this happening. And faced with this kind of risk, how much money would you be willing to spend to make your child at school marginally safer? <laughs> I mean, it's an obscene question. Yeah, I, I, I also do wonder how, when it comes to public spending, this is also one thing that the that, uh, uh, Republican Party, which, which often wants to cut spending, doesn't seem to have any problem finding the money to spend more money for guns at schools and that itself would cost money it doesn't seem to me cheap to provide you know yet more guns at yet more schools but this feedback loop of anxiety seems to to nudge in that direction uh i I mean i guess finally are there any economic studies that you know of adam about the effects that the anxieties produced by these kinds of school shootings more generally i mean We've gotten used to saying the kids are resilient. I mean, that was something we always heard during the pandemic. But I don't know. Does growing up in a kind of securitized regime, I mean, you know, maybe it's comparable in some ways to a low-level war zone. Does that leave some kind of traceable residue on on, on kids over their lives? You know, when I when I thought about this question at first, I thought, this is so wrong. This is so obscene. Like, there cannot be economic studies of this question. There cannot be, can there? 
for the world being as it is, there is in fact a paper by the National Bureau of Economic Research, the most prestigious publishing outlet for early stage research. So these aren't peer-reviewed papers yet, but they're on their way to being published in the top journals of economics. came out in 2022 by Marika Cabral and a, and a team of authors. And I'm just going to read the abstract because, you know, it's a document of our times. Using linked schooling and labor market data in Texas from 1992 to 2018, we compare within student and across cohort changes in outcomes following a shooting to those experienced by students at matched control schools. We find that school shootings increase absenteeism and grade repetition, reduce high school graduation, college enrollment and college completion, and reduce employment and earnings at ages 24 to 26. So for just the state of Texas, there is in fact enough data of school shootings to be able to organize a matched and statistically representative sample. It's estimated that 311,000 American kids have been in schools which have experienced shootings in the last 20 years alone. 311,000 kids. So you can indeed do the math on this population. And what you find is that there is a very considerable increase in absenteeism, a very considerable, a really dramatic increase, in fact, in grade repetition. These are in each case, of course, relatively small numbers, but the increases in them are absolutely dramatic. And you could actually cash this out. This has been going on for long enough on a large enough scale for you to be able to make economic estimates of the impact on people's lives of this trauma when they are young. And the economists involved in this study believe that over the lifetime of the people who were subject to this as kids, it will probably reduce their lifetime's earnings by $115,000. That is modern America for you. You can actually do this math because the data is there, because these incidents occur at such a horrifying level of frequency. That's stunning. And, and again, it's not the results here that matter at all. It's not the outcome of this. It's the fact that, that uh, uh, the United States of America apparently is a laboratory for scientific research into the effects of school shootings because we have enough of them to, to run these studies. Well, uh, there you go. That should, be, uh, that should be lesson enough, hopefully, for people in, in Washington uh, to uh, draw some conclusions. But I guess uh, we shouldn't keep our hopes up yet there. But yeah, we will uh, take a break and come back to talk about Switzerland. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And 
I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. We are now on our second data point, and that is 87,000 US dollars. That is the per capita GDP in Switzerland. And that makes it the second highest per capita GDP in the world. It's higher than every other country in the West, behind only the oil producing country of Qatar, as, as far as I can tell. You know, and it's extraordinary success for a, for a very small, mountainous, alpine country without any oil. And yeah, who better to discuss the secrets of Switzerland's success? than Adam Tooze, who's there right now. The World Economic Forum annual meeting, where the brightest minds, most powerful political figures, and global industry leaders all make the climb to Davos, Switzerland, a town nestled in the Swiss Alps, best known for its long so, ski Adam, trails and beautiful scenery. So, Adam, if there's one thing I would guess that the average person knows about Switzerland's economy, it's that it has bank secrecy. So... I guess for the uninitiated here, I mean, we've, we've probably all encountered that in movies or books or whatever, but what exactly does bank secrecy mean in practical terms? I mean, what exactly has traditionally been secret in Switzerland that, that has not been secret elsewhere? And, and how far back does this tradition go in, in Switzerland? It is an old, ancient tradition in Switzerland. Switzerland is obviously made up of a, you know, the German bit, which is Zurich, and then there's an Italian bit, which is along the border of northern Italy, and there's a Swiss part. And apparently the tradition of banker-client privilege originated amongst Italian merchants already in the 1600s in that Italian part of, of, of Switzerland. But the first formalization of bank secrecy in Switzerland was in the French bit in Geneva in 1713. And it appears to have been basically a bolt hole already then for the more or less ill-gotten gains of the French aristocracy who wanted to move their money out of harm's way and particularly out of the grasp of Louis XIV at the time, the great absolutist king, who um, monarch, who uh, declared you know, that the the state is me, and and so was the property of many of his subjects, even his aristocratic subjects. So that's that's where it got started. 
And then it was formalized in this extraordinary banking law the Swiss passed in 1934. And the key to it in Switzerland is that it's a criminal offense for a banking official to disclose information about a client's bank account. Uh, without their consent. So that would be the name, the bank number, let alone what's actually um, in the bank account. So what the Swiss do is to criminalize the disclosure of information about accounts by bank officials. So that's a very, very powerful mechanism because obviously the bankers don't want to go to jail. And and at the time and since, the, the Swiss like to tell the story that they did this, 1934, right? That's one year after Hitler came to power in 1933. Believe it or not, they like to claim that they introduced this to protect the assets of German Jews um, fleeing Nazi oppression. Uh, It's an astonishing act of chutzpah on their part, um, given what actually happened in Switzerland with fleeing the Jewish population of both Germany and Austria. Uh, And it's a complete myth. Um, It's said that during World War II, the Swiss uh, used to quip that six days a week they worked for Hitler's war effort, and on the seventh day they prayed for an Allied victory. So intensely were they uh, mobilized behind the Nazi war effort. Really, the the modern form of um, banking secrecy in in Switzerland goes back again to the early 1900s and again to the Franco-Swiss connection, because in the early 1900s, in 1901, to be more precise, the French Third Republic introduced a much higher rate of inheritance tax. And promptly, all along the border between France and Switzerland, banking houses sprang up and adverts were most posted offering French clients protection for their wealth against the rapacious French tax authorities. By 1911, there was already very widespread French tax evasion in the Swiss banking system. So it's a very hardwired, very dug-in system, which essentially protects the anonymity. So, you know, it's really an unknown unknown. A Swiss bank account is just nothing anyone knows about unless you tell them, because no one else is going to tell anyone about your banking account there. It's a form of absolute shrouded uh, obscurity. And just so I understand, that that means it's even secret to the Swiss government itself, right? I mean, this is not just anonymity from sharing that information with outside countries. It's even anonymous internally to the Swiss government, the bank accounts. Absolutely. Okay, that is pretty wild. It It is worth saying this is not your average bank account. So this is not your typical current account with a Visa card in it. This is private banking. So it's an exclusive group of banks which offer these services for very large bank charges I see. to um, to private clients. Have there been efforts, you know, serious efforts by other countries to weaken Swiss bank secrecy? Uh, or is this more like a situation where everyone kind of quietly benefits from having Switzerland available as a place for, for the dark side of global economics to kind of happen in the shadows? So they kind of allow, tacitly allow this, this bankruptcy secrecy to continue? There have been moments that, that, that had that kind of quality, especially during the exchange control period of the Bretton Woods system in the 1950s and 60s. Switzerland was a useful entrepreneur for offshore transactions. More recently, uh, the United States Congress has taken a very firm line on Switzerland's uh, secrecy and the, the services that it provides to the Russian oligarchs. Uh, which is remarkable because in Tax Justice Network, which is generally regarded as the benchmark in indexing the highest levels of banking secrecy and tax evasion enabled by states, ranks the United States and the Caymans Islands both above Switzerland uh, in terms of their own, the loopholes that they provide. 
but in the end, the pressure on Switzerland after the the revelations to do with the use of Switzerland as a depot for Nazi gold um, in the 1940s and the aftermath of World War II, and then um, big drives globally to try and crack down on tax evasion. In 2014, Switzerland did do a deal with more than 30 other advanced economies around the world to exchange tax information, including data from Swiss bank accounts um, of the largest clients in those um, other countries. So to that extent, Swiss banking secrecy is no longer what it was. But uh, this does not apply to the rest of the world. So Switzerland shares information with other rich countries, which enables rich countries to pursue people who are evading tax in Swiss bank accounts. But it doesn't have that relationship with developing countries, low income countries and emerging market countries around the world. And so 90 plus major sources of financial flows to Switzerland continue to to operate under the old rules. So it's it's called the so-called zebra stripe. And so... I guess looking at Swiss watches, I guess I wonder just, you know, how big a business are these watches from Switzerland? And and, and I guess more broadly, is there is there some internal connection, you know, between the structure of Switzerland's financial economy that we've been talking about, these banks and, you know, the investments from rich people around the world and this kind of hugely successful business of selling luxury products like watches? I mean, is it just a coincidence that it sells, you know, these kinds of luxury products? Or do they go hand in hand with its, you know, financial economy in, in some sort of historical and, and structural way? I do think they are closely connected in the sense that it positions Switzerland in a niche, right? It's a, it's a niche success story. Switzerland produces just over 20 million watches a year, which is about 2% of the global production of timepieces, um, but it commands 50% of the value of the global watch industry. I mean, that's incredible, right? 2% of the total production, but 50% of the value, because the average Swiss watch sells for about $1,000 or for 1,000 Swiss francs. So super high end um, is the is the answer here. It's not a huge part of the Swiss economy. It's about 1.5% of Swiss GDP, apparently, employs about 100,000 people. And rather sadly, the, the workers in the Swiss um, watch industry are not paid um, huge amounts. It's actually not a super highly paid sector. You might expect that, you know, to, to work that way. But they're, they're, many of them are migrant workers from, from France, and they tend to earn um, fractionally below the average for uh, workers in the Swiss economy, who are generally, of course, very highly paid. So it's a it's a sector which has struggled over the years, as you as you as you perhaps expect. It's a manufacturing sector that was subject to really savage Asian competition from the 1970s onwards. Then managed to restore its its brand image by going into the ultra high end sector, and then you had you know Swatch and the the modern Swiss watch industry that came along with this new generation of newfangled uh, timepieces. It's under pressure now from things like the wearables, you know, like the Apple Watch, which is a similarly sort of high-end product for affluent consumers and competes with the Swiss. So it's it's not um, a huge industry, but it's, it's, it's typical of Switzerland that they are able to survive at all in a manufacturing sector like that by, um, you know, dominating the, the high-end uh, segment of the market. I mean, I'm maybe betraying my ignorance here, but is there anything specific about Swiss watches that they that they do they sort of perform better, or or, or I mean, anything that's particular that justifies that kind of 
luxury price? I mean, or is it really basically this is just conspicuous consumption? Well, it is conspicuous consumption, but they are pieces of art. I mean, the you know the the fine mechanical operation of, of Swiss clocks is it's a hundred. It's it's a craft and a, and a me- uh, mechanics and a form of engineering that's that's many hundreds of years old. They are undoubtedly the most precise mechanical clocks of their type, mass manufactured in any form anywhere. I mean, the Swiss, not just in clockmaking, but also in you know ultra high end machine tool manufacturing, for instance perfected, really dramatically sophisticated um, uh, engineering techniques. Um, you know, there were there were plants for the manufacture of very high-end machine tools that were seismically secure, you know, buried into tunnels in the granite of the Alps so as to ensure an absolutely stable natural environment in which to produce these ultra-high precision tools. It's not for nothing, I think, that the you know the great hydron collider the the giant ultra high energy physics um system it's the, i think the, i think people say it's the most complicated machine that humanity has ever produced that it should be in switzerland um is no is no accident i think hmm maybe those watches keep even more accurate accurate time then as well uh, i guess finally switzerland as I said at the top, is obviously a really successful economy. I mean, it doesn't seem any way other way to describe it. But is this a model, do you think, that other countries could, could adopt or learn from? Or, or does this really only work as a kind of exception in the, in, the, in the global economy as a whole? It's particularly interesting, I think, because it hasn't always been standout for its wealth. So down to the late 19th century, it was lagged significantly behind the UK, for instance. The UK had had a much bigger industrial revolution at an early stage, whereas Switzerland at that point already had substantial industry, but also had a large peasant agricultural sector. And though you know, Heidi and cuckoo clocks and Swiss cheese may be cute, they're not, they're not a way to, to grow rich. I mean, the secret to Switzerland's success in the 20th century, uh, which is when it catapulted itself into the very front ranks, is is essentially to blend um, very high-end manufacturing that we've been talking about with this large export-orientated service sector. And it's the two things together that really give Switzerland its its edge. It has to be said, it's in a rather favourable location at the absolute heart of Europe, at the crossroads of Europe. And to that extent, um, you know, we, one has to compare it to other rich, if you like, economies uh, of, of space. So I'm thinking of like the the merchant fortunes of the Delta of the Rhine in the Netherlands and um, cities like Amsterdam and Rotterdam, or if you think of the Thames estuary in London, I mean, the population of, of Switzerland is is not larger than the than the population of London. So if you if you compare like with like, if you like, you shouldn't compare Switzerland with the United Kingdom as a whole. If you compare it with London, then Switzerland's advantage shrinks somewhat. But but nevertheless, even allowing for that, it has made the absolutely best in economic terms out of the locational advantages that it has, being at the head, you know, on the headwaters of the Rhine, on these crucial crucial passage points across the Alps between France, Italy, and the German lands. For all of those natural advantages in location, it has also just simply made the best of its situation. Got it. Well, uh, we can all hope to be so fortunate as to be in the right place geographically like Switzerland happens to be. But yeah, in the meantime, I hope you enjoy your visit there and we will leave it there for now. 
Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. 
trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.